Well, here's to trying something new. As a media person in both my professional and personal life, podcasting has become a passion of mine, you might say. Like a disease without a cure, I'm affected with the podcast bug. Only, I'm embracing it. For the last two and a half years, I've published almost 200 podcasts that were very, very cannabis-centric, which is great if you're into cannabis, but it definitely puts you into a bit of a rigid category that not everyone is interested in. So I'm branching out a little bit, you might say. I still like my weed, and weed will remain a big part of my interviews and storytelling, but I'm going to reach out to crazy and interesting people who can tell us their stories, whether they're about weed or not. So introducing Insiders Podcast. I like to say it's a podcast that features real people with unreal stories. Today we kick it off with Dan Lamort. He's a funny comedian who's also a bit of a cannabis guy, ironically. But mostly, Dan's just a great storyteller who also happens to be fucking funny. If you don't already know who he is, you won't forget him after listening to this interview. He's a funny guy and a perfect specimen for the launch of the Insiders podcast. All right, I hope you're sitting down and you're buckled up. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. I thought this your, is awesome. I thought your name looked French, uh, La Morte, but I've seen enough of your videos now. I know it's not La Morte. Yeah, it's La Morte. Uh, it gets mispronounced a lot. I guess it go either way. Everyone always tells me it's French. I just say it's Italian, but I look Irish, so it doesn't really matter. What do I, I know? I don't speak French, and I'm not French, but that was my assumption anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's fancier if you add the te, yeah, La Morte. Especially if you really drag La Morte. They'd be like, this guy doesn't match the New Jersey fresh that I am. No. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, give us your brief bio. Who are you? I am a comedian. I'm 25 years old. I live, well, I was supposed to be living in Manhattan at this point, but I had to, you know, staying in Jersey now because there's no comedy in the city anymore. Yeah. I was a college baseball player. That was my story. I blew up my arm when I was 19. Yeah. I gained a good ton of weight doing comedy on the road. And then I've been taking it off by getting stoned and running. Getting stoned is helping you take weight off. That's good. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> are shocked at that because they have the munchies. But uh, I've been using it as like the boost to my, you know, workout world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it briefly. Um, so you're in Brooklyn right now, you said, or New Jersey? I'm actually in New Jersey right now down the okay. shore. My girlfriend lives in Astoria, Queens. So a lot of the time, like half the week I'm in Astoria, but if uh, not, I'm in Jersey. So give me the Coles Notes version. What is your uh, COVID story? My Corona story? There you go. Oh, boy. Uh, so I would say the the biggest story of all, I mean, I've had it. I know that. I've had the virus, which is one thing. I never really talked about it on social media. I've never put it on Twitter or anything. Wow. But like I both, me and my girlfriend both had it. She had it much worse than I did. I only had the not being able to smell and uh, taste for a few weeks. But uh, she was in the hospital at one point. Uh, but I was also in the hospital at a point during the coronavirus because I gave her a piggyback ride when we were quarantining together. And uh, she was coming down the stairs. I was at the bottom of the stairs and I was like, jump on my back. Let's do a piggyback ride. That'll be cute. Why not? We were stoned, you know, playing around. And she got on my back and I take a few steps. We're in the house and she starts to slide down. Mm. I was like, what, do you not know how to piggyback? So I try to like throw her up and I hike her so high that she tips us forward. Yeah. And so I start falling face first with her on me and I'm nervous that if I 
push her off and block my head that she'll get hurt. So I just made like the decision to eat the concrete floor. And I got like a six centimeter cut across this. So she's freaks out. She's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, babe, because I'm trying to be good for her. I'm like, nothing's wrong. It's not bleeding. No worries. But she comes over to my side and I'm on the floor and I lift my head up. Yeah. And I guess not only did she see the cut, but lifting the head up shot the blood to the head Bleh. and it started squirting out of the head. Well, so I... we didn't know what to do. We didn't know if we had to go to the hospital because Corona was going on. So we went to uh, an urgent care in New Jersey, like right around the corner. And I, my arms are covered in blood because the head has a lot of blood. My head is dripped. I'm just holding a rag. My head is split open. And I walk into the urgent care and the woman just looks at me and goes, go to the hospital. <laughs> Because not here. We don't want to not fuck with here. that shit. Yeah. Yeah. She sent me right to the hospital. I got 10 stitches in my face. It ended up healing pretty nice, but it's left a pretty wicked scar. Come a little closer. There we go. Oh, yeah, man. Okay. It's it's good, though. You know what? I saw your tweets a while back, so I, I saw it like maybe a day or two after it happened, and it was pretty nasty. Yeah, I posted on Instagram the actual picture of the cut, and it was wide. Maybe it was Insta. Yeah. So are you yeah, making a routine wide. out of this story now? Is this part? I guess. You know, I, I've told the story once to like uh, uh, some local a theater program in philly was looking for covid stories so i i sold them the story but it's not it's still my property so i will take it to stage whenever that comes back yeah um and it's funny because the, the, the most ironic thing is my girlfriend keeps telling me she's like yeah but at least the scar the scar is manly i'm like but do you remember how i got it in the least manly way possible yeah it's one thing to have a bit of a scar on your eyebrow but i mean you don't want it to heal all fucked up right i mean you do want to look no, semi-normal like it started to heal too good and i got worried i was like well you want a little something you don't yeah. want to go through the pain to not have because that's the best place to get a scar is the eyebrow people love that looking scar i guess and you get hair that grows over it's just not it's not horrible yeah you know yeah i have a scar that there. I got a scar here and I got a scar on the elbow. Those are my big three. All right. So I read your bio on your Twitter handle and uh, also your website. Um, one thing that you seem to mention a lot, gluten-free. Yes. Uh, you mentioned weed. Yes. Uh, and of course, stand-up. Stand-up. Yeah. Those are my three, you know, because the I was diagnosed. I was told to stop eating gluten, I should say, two years ago. About a year and a half ago, I was told that I might have celiac disease and to give it up. I was really heavy and my liver was showing some weird signs and I decided to make the changes and it was incredible. You know, it was like my body felt so much better. So I just kept living that gluten-free life. You know, I was never a hundred percent diagnosed celiac, but I was told that I might have it and to see if the improvements helped. And once it improved, I kind of just kept going yeah. off that. But yeah. honestly, truthfully, weed helps that because gluten-free food doesn't taste great. Yeah. I think gluten's one of those things you have to wean yourself off of. And then once you do, you start to realize, fuck man, this feels actually pretty good. You know, because we're so used yeah, to eating like, bread and whatever else. And you could you trick you could trick yourself that it tastes better like the big ones cauliflower pizza now. And mm. I got my girlfriend to start eating and for like a month straight when we were quarantined in Jersey, she just ate cauliflower pizza. She's like, "This shit's good." And then she went back to New York and had a slice of regular pizza and was like, "I was so wrong." I wish <laughs> I had Stockholm. She was like, "I had Stockholm syndrome. But it's not." You can't put pizza in that equation, right? I mean, maybe maybe bread or something else, but pizza, come on, man. You're right, especially yeah, if you're yeah, in New I'll, York, get out of here. Yeah, and when <laughs> when the crust is made from bread, I mean, my pizza, the crust is made from a vegetable. It's a huge disadvantage. Yeah, I guess it has and to be a guilty pleasure. Gluten-free bread's not good. Like that's one of my big jokes on stage. I say gluten-free bread tastes like what step parents feel like. <laughs> that's what it's, that is the truth. You're like, "Hey, it's not a gluten-free bagel. It's dad." But it is, it is what it is. Or the other way around. 
month. It's been so long, I can't even tell jokes anymore. Well, yeah, I'm going to get to that in a second. You're 25, um, and you've been headlining and touring now for how long? Like, since you're about 20? Yeah, about 20. I started comedy when I was a teenager. I started going on the road probably when I was 19 or 20. Uh, I was always a big believer. A lot of guys in New York, you know, I mean, I put in my time in New York. I'm past the big clubs there, headlining the clubs there. But I was always big on going out, even when I didn't have a fan base. And I don't have a, a large one to this point, but just going out and seeing the people who want to see you. I was always big on that. And yeah. road was a great place to do that. You know, I would pack up cars when I was 19, 20, just start driving around the country. I get fascinated um, now hearing from and talking to comedians. And I think that's part and parcel because of all my Joe Rogan listening. And you probably get tired yeah. of people bringing up Joe Rogan as because you're a comedian. But um, I've really learned in the last, I don't know, three, four years, the ins and outs of the life of comedy and comedians and the camaraderie and what it takes yeah. to do it and the grind. And it's kind of fascinating fascinating actually because i mean you're not fucking around if you want to be a comedian it's it's a lot of work yeah it's it's a very special type of insanity i think to put yourself through what you go through i mean just coming up in new york say like when you do make the transition to finally going to the big city there's a good chance you're going to be a barker which means you stand in front of a venue and try to tell people to come in to see the show yeah then if you get a certain amount of people in you get stage time uh i barked for years i sold tickets in times square next to like the characters in costume i would have a lanyard on trying to sell comedy tickets and then if i sold a few tickets i'd get five minutes at a club that night. Well, that wouldn't, was a period of time. That kind of thing wouldn't mean anything to me if I hadn't heard so many other comedian stories. And, you know, and like you always hear about this, this comedy store, and I'd love to go there one day, but people working the door, people selling yeah. tickets, uh, people emceeing even. Yeah, yeah, just getting everybody to contribute and, and get a little bit of stage time. Yeah, it was very interesting to like be, it, it, there's a, there's good and bad to it because the store is a little bit different. I've never been a, I mean, I've performed at the store. I've never been a part of their actual family, like being a regular there or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In New York, uh, there's no venues where really comics work at the venue, uh, opposed to like being on the street team. Yeah. But that also, it, it there's good and bad to it. Like good, you, you learn how to talk to people a little bit more. It helps your crowd work. Yeah. But bad man, it, you stand out there and like, you'll have like 20 people in a row tell you no. And you'll be like, well, am I even a comic? I'm just a guy selling tickets in Times Square. It was the most degrading job I've held in my life by far. And it was tough though, because I was selling tickets during the day, right? And then I was barking at night. So I would sell tickets from seven in the morning to about 6 37 at night. Oh my god. I'd go to the New York Comedy Club. They'd give me five minutes for selling those tickets, sometimes 10 minutes. Then I'd go to a venue called the the Lantern Comedy Club. That's what it's now called. It used to be the Village Lantern. Yeah. And I would bark for two shows there at eleven o'clock and like twelve thirty. 31 o'clock in the morning. And since I lived in Jersey, I, I didn't make sense to go all the way home. So I would sleep in the storage room of my dad's deli in lower Manhattan. I'd put a blanket on top of a washing and drying machine. And I would sleep on top of that. And like, that is the, the, the sad thing about the coronavirus is I was supposed to move in to that building where I was sleeping on the washing drying machine on May 15th. I had an apartment. I was finally getting one in this building, like the full circle, you know, you go from sleeping there in the storage room to owning an apartment there. Yeah. But I, you know, Corona really had a different idea for what comedy was going to be. Do you ever feel like people don't get it? Like, obviously there's a passion there. It's in your blood. Um, you ever tell people this kind of stuff? And they're like, you're fucking nuts, man. Or yeah, you know, I do. And then 
Um, I get it when they think I'm nuts because some it's like David Goggins is one of my favorite people. You know, he's one of the big guys on Rogan. And I, that's actually my current goal, you know, is to lose 150 pounds. I did now I want to run an ultra marathon. So I've been obsessed with that lately trying to talk to a nutritionist today, getting the diet right. And, uh, Goggins always talks about people look at him like he's crazy when he talks about what he loves. And it's because they just never found their passion. Yeah. And that's easy to tell. Like when I talk to someone who's never done comedy, but is passionate about something, they talk the same way. They don't think you're crazy. Yeah. It's the people who never actually found what they love to do that look at you like you're insane. Yeah, that's a good point. David Goggins is a little bit insane, though. I don't care what you say. I don't care. <laughs> I don't understand how he says that he's not insane. He likes to think it's just a human possibly. Every human could do what he does. That's not accurate. Well, I, I hope the best for you at the ultra marathon. I've been running now for uh, more than 25 years. And uh, no 10K is like... It's, it, it's an hour of my time. It's a lot. And, you know, yeah. I don't even uh, fascinate about marathons even. You know, there are those who run miles and miles and miles. And I'm just like, I don't get it. You know, yeah, to each I, their own. I think the weed is what helps me with it. Because in New Jersey, we have so many great trails. So yeah. I'll wake up, I'll smoke, and then I'll pack another joint and I'll hit the car. I'll smoke in the car over to a trail and I'll run. You know, it started. That's how I started to really lose the weight. It started slow. And the weed really helped at first because I didn't have the passion to run. I was yeah. fucking 350 pounds. There's not much you're going to want to do it that way. But you know, it, it slowly and surely now I'll get high and put in 35 miles a week. That's what I'm up to these days. I'm trying to push it to 50 by August. That's the goal. And That's I good. think edibles is what's going to take me there. There's only so much joints could do for you when you're running. When I'm starting to put in, you know, hour and a half, two hour runs, yeah. edibles you need. You need to take them like half hour into the run, 45 minutes into the run, and then they'll kick in for that last bit of the run. You know what? I've experimented with weed and running a few times, smoking it and eating it. And yeah. uh, I don't know if I've found the right formula. I think I'm better with eating than smoking. Maybe it's psychological yeah. or something. You know, dry yeah, mouth and... Yep. Jolly Ranchers. Lifesaver. Uh, while you're I, running? Jolly Ranchers when I run. Yeah, yeah. It's a big runner's trick for like long runs because it's sugar. So it keeps you going and it helps the dry mouth because that is my big... When I run sober, I don't have the dry mouth issues that I do when I'm stoned. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to comedy here. Since this is what yeah. you do, right? Um, yeah. So there's no gigs right now, obviously. Do you have anything no. at least like potentially down the road that you might go to should everything normalize? Uh, the most I, I, I have right now is just reaching out to venues that I usually tour to and being like, hey, I'm interested in coming back when you guys are open again. Yeah. And this is, you know, however you see fit. Every month of venues, you know, Philly, uh, some venues that I had canceled in Connecticut have reached back out. But right now, literally nothing on the books, which is kind of crazy. You know, there was stuff on the books and to not see it is sad. But today was the first day in New York. They did a drive-in comedy show in Queens. And? I didn't do it. I wasn't booked on Disaster? it. Disaster? Or was it good? I think it was, you know, the the cars were there, but it's not the same feeling. I Because the way they're laughing is they're honking the horns. <sighs> and it's like, I get it. It's, it's the closest thing we have to comedy right now. We have to do whatever we can. But that's not the same as coming back. When you're on stage and you're working with the crowd and their laughter, you get into a vibe. You can't get into a vibe with a horn. <laughs> Well, I've watched some of that stuff online that they started doing initially. And I've also watched some of the talk shows like Fallon and that sort of thing. And credit to them, because I can only imagine how tough it must be. Yeah. And it's still funny. But you're right. That vibe is just non-existent. Yeah. What are you going to crowd work? How are you going to crowd work them? Their windows are open. They're listening to the radio. I like to fuck with people in the crowd. I like to point out what's going on. You know, you're not going to have any spilled glasses. or There's going to be nothing to work with. There's going to be people sitting in a car, nothing to riff. But I, I would love to do it if they actually to do it tomorrow i'd say hell yeah i, I would do anything to tell jokes to get out there. there do you smoke weed when you perform 
Yes, that was a new thing, though. That started in October. There's a, one of the big comedy festivals. It's called the Big Sky Comedy Festival. It's in Montana. Yeah. They pick like 20 comedians every year to go out there. It's turned into really a, a great time. It's like a week. Uh, you do a lot of activities and shit. But out there, one of the shows, they do the drunk versus sober show. So some comedians go sober, some go up drunk. I was on the drunk team, and I figured, you know what? Let me go up high as well. I'd never done it before. <laughs> so you're drunk and, and high. And ever since then, I'm pretty sure I've performed high about 90% of the time. Wow. Okay. Is it like a loss of inhibitions? Is it maybe um, the ability to think outside of the box a bit? What is it? I don't know what it is, honestly. I was never a guy who had anxiety before I went on stage. Yeah. So it's not that. I think there is a level of comfortability that it gives me. I mean, I already felt like I was pretty comfortable up there, but it does put me into a very relaxed mindset. It helps the crowd work a bit because mm. instead of feeling like I'm talking to an audience member, kind of feels like you're talking to someone on a couch maybe because you have that stoned, relaxed feel. You're a little less... There's a lot of the problems with crowd work is comics will try to work the crowd and they'll get too aggressive yeah. and the crowd will yeah. not know how to actually go with them. So when you're a little more peaceful and stoned up there, people are like, hey, this guy's jolly. He's sitting down on the stool. It's like he's selling a campfire story. Yeah, well, the weed helps with that. Um, If it's a big show, I will be honest, I do tend to go up sober. Well, it's your job. Yeah, that's that's the hardest part of it is because at the end of the day, it's your job. It feels weird to be getting paid to be stoned somewhere. Mm -hmm. But at some point, it's like if it's a show where I'm on the road and I know I draw and it's people who come out to see Dan Lamore, it's almost like part of them are expecting to see me a little stoned up there. Yeah. So it's like this weird thing. Where do you go with it? And sometimes I go up sober. Sometimes I remember one time I was on the road in Buffalo, New York, and I ate a whole chocolate bar from a dispensary. I mean, I'll regularly eat anywhere from 100 to 300 milligrams edible. This was in a 100 milligram bar. I ate it before going on stage. Yeah. Just because why not? We were in Buffalo. It was a light turnout. (laughs) And it was like one of these crappy old venues. They had a fan, like one of those big fucking stand-up fans on stage. And Mm -hmm. by 40 minutes into the set, there's just a video of me hunched over the fan with my face in front of it, just letting it blow on me. Like there, it was a meltdown. You know, there are times where the edible is not good on stage. Would you say if you're doing more than one set in an evening, you tend to do the first one more sober? Is that kind of the the pattern? And then you have a few drinks in between or you smoke a joint and by the end of the night, let's say you're lucky enough to do three, you'd probably be a little loosened. Yeah, New York is, you know, usually threes uh, regular night. You get, New York's not a rare place to get three to seven sets in a night. So they'll just move people in and out by an hour yeah, or two. Yeah, there's so many different clubs. You know, you got you you could go from doing a club that has 200 people in it to a bar show that has 20 people in a grimy basement. And the bar show might be just as fun. That's the beautiful thing in New York. There's shows in barber shops, business offices. The people are doing comedy anywhere now, which I think will be a huge help moving forward. Mm-hmm. Because backyard comedy shows are already thing. I'm already talking in New Jersey about starting a backyard comedy show this summer. Uh, people are already doing comedy shows in weird venues. So I think comedy will be okay for that reason, because people are already starting to get a little out of the box with it. Um, There's a big uh, weed show in California called The Gateway Show. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's a stand-up show. Okay. They they have the comics do seven minutes sober. Then they get off stage and they hire a 420 limo. It's in Los Angeles. So this limo picks you up. You're allowed. They give you moon rock joints, edibles. They make you drink 100 milligrams of lemonade. And then they have the same four comics go out and do another seven-minute set while being – they try to get you the highest you've ever been. They literally give you things that I've never seen before outside of this venue. And I remember the night I did it, there was probably 180 people. And the girl before me – let me tell you, she smoked down with all of, she was the only female on the lineup, which is a problem comedy, as we know. Yeah. And she fucking hung into the end, smoked with me to the end. She goes to do her seven minute set. 
you get the light at a minute. You know, that's when you wrap up at a minute, you get off. So you're supposed to get the light at six. He's on stage. She says, that's my time. I went over. She runs off the stage. So worried. The host runs up to her and says, what the fuck are you doing? He says, you've done 30 seconds. <laughs> she thought she had done like the full seven minutes already. She wasn't even a full minute into the set before thinking she went over her time. <laughs> what percentage of comedians would you say uh, consume weed? Like, is it even fair to wager a guess? Is it pretty weed culture, pretty common backstage, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of cultures are popular backstage. I've learned. Yeah. I've learned every com, not every comic, but a lot of comics have bad habits, and you just become okay with what you. I mean, I have, and one of my favorite stories, like a, a fun drug story to tell about comedy, mm. it's not even a comedian. We were on tour in St. Louis, and uh, it was a bad turnout. Maybe ten tickets sold. It was like a Tuesday. It was my first time in St. Louis. I didn't really know how to promote there. And it was this fun burlesque venue. And they actually, their green room was the entire basement floor. It was beautiful. So we walk in there and the owner's in the green room. And I say, hey, man, do you mind if I smoke a joint in the green room? Is that cool with you? And then he looks at me and he just takes out like a little vial of cocaine and puts it on the table of the green room and then snorts a line and goes, do whatever the fuck you want, man. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like so it. But in New York, it's I think New York, you'll have a lot of stoner comics. It's not rare. A lot of them aren't open about it, but I know a lot of comics won't talk about it on stage and then are stoned. Because there is a weird stigma about being a weed comic. And it's something I have to deal with a lot. I don't think I'm a weed comic. I just am someone who's high and does comedy. Well, you had a bit about uh, feeding edibles to your parents, 50 milligrams each. Yeah, I love talking about it on garden. stage, but like there's a stigma where you get lumped in as like a weed comic. And okay. like for some reason it's looked at as a bad thing, but it's like, what's the difference? You know, it's, it's like Ralphie May used to say when people would call him a fat comic. I'm not a fat comic. I'm a comic who is fat. Like yeah. I'm not a weed comic. It's a comic who happens to be smoking weed. It's part of your culture, and and perhaps you can you, you write about what you know, but at the same time, that's not the only thing you're about. Exactly, I guess. and it's a newer thing for me. You know, comedians talk about what's new in their life, and weed isn't the most. You know, I I've started smoking when I was in high school, but like everyday use only started two years ago after the celiac diagnosis. Okay. Do you use weed to write? Does it help you? Sometimes, yeah. There, there was a period of right before the quarantine happened where I was doing this thing where I was getting as high as I could off weed every night, yeah. right before I went to bed, and then I'd sit in bed for an hour and write. And at the start of that, I came up with the core of my new hour for my last album, like moving forward. Because every time you release an album, you try to work on a new hour of material, or at least that's what you're supposed to do. Some comics are lazy and don't do that. But the core of the new hour I, I've been working on since that album was developed through that method of late night writing very stoned. I, I was weirdly able to access memories, older memories that I hadn't been able to remember for a while, like childhood shit yeah. that was very funny that just wasn't there for one reason or another over the past six years. It, it let me dig to some places that I hadn't dug to. And it did help. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I write sober and I'm a very big believer in late night stoned writing sessions as well. I think you just need to proofread and edit sober, probably. Make sure that what you're saying makes sense and that it's not actually just a crazy <laughs> thought. There are some nights I wake up after those stoned writing sessions and you're like, why does it say earwax on this page? What does that mean? <laughs> They're like, what idea was that? You'll never find it. You'll know in that moment you had a good idea. But when yeah. you wake up, it's gone. Um, you have two albums out. So what exactly do you mean by album? Like, are they like uh, long form podcasts with your routines? Are they videos? So a stand-up album is essentially, you know, you have uh, an audio engineer come into a comedy club one night when you're okay. headlining and then they just set up microphones in the audience and they mic you. And it's basically, you know, so my first album is 
uh, a headline set from the New York Comedy Club when I was probably 21 years old, I think. Wow. It was a mistake. I should have never done it. It was too early to do an album. Uh, my second album, Infect Me Once, I really did enjoy. And that was from a performance recorded live at Zany's in Chicago uh, last January. Uh, so it's like they, these engineers come in and it's fun because... It's an album that exists forever, but it's recorded from a moment that just happened one time. You know, that crowd work only happened on that album. You know, it was one moment. But yeah, my first time was wild. I'd never done an hour before. That's, you know, and my first time ever doing an hour was the first time I recorded my first album. Dude, I used to be in Toastmasters and doing a five minute speech is brutal. So I can, you know, doing an hour. Um, So I guess if you get bigger, these things turn into specials. It's the same concept. It's the idea. Yeah, I mean, t- the what I say the rule of thumb is an album is audio and a special is anyone who puts video out with it. Like I recorded the last album with three cameras and was planning on putting it out, but I only put up some clips here and there. I don't want to put out the full thing. I think it takes a bit, like Mark Norman recently put out a special on YouTube and it's up to a million views now in like about a week and a half. And he's at a level of fame where he's not a household name, but he has enough followers to put out a special. And I didn't want to put it out yet because I like where I'm at, but there's still a lot of work to be done, like following wise to put out a video. There's a lot of money goes into recording a special. Yeah, of course. Do you record all your shows? Like for your um, own purposes? I don't have a camera myself, but I, I would like try audio? to have cameramen there. Usually audio is all recorded always. Yeah. And do you listen back to them and critique that way and get little bits and listen yeah. to what people yeah. so responded like, to? For instance, and- when I'm on tour, like my, not a lot of comedians do tours anymore. Like they'll go, like they'll go on the road. But they'll go every weekend. When I do my tours, you know, I'm one of the last. I go out like a punk rock band. We'll do the last one was 26 cities, I think, in 30 days. And um, well, I'm stoned as well. <laughs> you're forgiven. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I mean, you're 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 hitting it hard. Basically, you're going out on the road. You're having. Oh, it. this was the writing process yeah. we were talking about. So I bring two comics with me on the road. So when uh, the last one was my friend Michael and Maggie. So what we do is we all record our sets. And then since we go city to city, it's a long drive. So in that car ride, if they wanted to take the option, I would always take the option. We would play our sets out loud for the three of us. We'd pull open our notebooks, whoever wasn't driving, and we would help each other with our sets in the car critiquing. All right, we can add laughs here. We could trim the fat here. I do think that's a great way to do comedy um, is to go back and listen. But also I'm, you know, human and lazy. So there are a lot of sets that go unlistened to. Um Growing up, my dad had Cheech and Chong albums, so I get the concept, and we would listen to them and piss our pants laughing. You know, I was a kid, maybe, and I and I still think they're hilarious. But it was even more funny because yeah. I was my cerebral cortex hadn't developed yet, so the concepts that Cheech and Chong were dishing out were just like holy shit! Amazing. <laughs> I remember walking into like my dad watching the Cheech and Chong movie, and I was like, "This is incredible." <laughs> and that was my introduction to comedy. Was I would steal my parents' comedy CDs that I found laying around, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, when I was really young, I always knew like because when all my friends were warming up for the baseball games when I was a college athlete, they listened to music to pump them up, and I'd be the weird pitcher who was listening to Bill Hicks or George Carlin before yeah. a game, and people be like, "Why are you listening to stand up?" I'd be like, "I don't know. Don't you all do that?" I found a cartoon of you online uh, called Dinner Date. So I, they took one of your bits. Oh, yeah. So what's the story behind that? Because it's actually really well done. Yeah, that was um that cartoon was really cool. I forgot the guy's name who did it. That was my first album was with a record label called On Tour Records. Yeah. Uh they were based out of Kentucky. They would give albums to comics who were on the road a lot. The opportunity came up to where they wanted to do one with me. So I was like, Yeah, because when I was young it made no sense, but we did it. And when they went to promote the album when it came out, they had an artist do two animated videos for the album. 
And that was one of them. Like they, that was their gift to me for doing the album with them was they animated a bit. Okay. Okay. And uh, that was fun. Yeah. That was the dinner date. That was like one of my earliest jokes where like, it's clear that's an early Dan, the more joke where it's clearly not drawn from life. It's just an absurd bit about a woman falling off a roof during a dinner top date. It was but good. Like that was that was the fun of early comedy for me. Was it was very absurd. It wasn't very much based in reality yet. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's short and sweet. All the cliches. So it it works right. A little package on its own. Yeah. 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 Like when I tell people who listen to my first album, they're like, "How do you feel about it?" I'm like, "I hate it for real. <laughs> I don't like the material. There's a lot of stuff in there that's a little bit hacky because I was young. I didn't know who was doing what. Yeah. But what I, what I tell myself is the setup and the structure of a lot of those jokes in that early album are very good for the shell of how a comedian should be starting. A lot of those jokes have a setup, they have a middle, there's tags, there's good closes. Uh, I think I actually, I have gone back to the way I wrote that album recently. I found my notes from when I put that album out four years ago, and I was writing in a different manner. I was typing things out, and I started to bring that back all from finding that off the first album again. Oh, cool, man. Well, you've been at this for six years. So how do you go about marketing yourself? It must take up a lot of your time. How do you get yourself out there and try to get exposure for your work and for what you do? It does take a lot of time. But what I've done to kind of offset that, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, some people notice it on social media, I've done a pretty good job of making my Twitter and Instagram. It's very personal. You know, I, I try to talk to people as much as possible. I, I share a lot of personal things and that makes the promotion for it of me a little bit easier. Cause it's like, this feels like an extension of me. Mm -hmm. I'm not addicted to it. My phone is off. Most of the times I do not disturb 24 seven, but like, it's also, it's very honest. It's genuine. And that's how the promotion has helped me. But yeah, promoting the tours are tough, man. It's like when you don't have a big manager and agent, which I don't, I have neither. Uh, it's all on you from the booking of the tour to the promotion of the tour to the getting the artwork ready to getting the ads. And when I'm doing these tours, I'm not doing comedy clubs. I'm doing punk rock music venues. So that means you have no help selling tickets. So every ass in that seat is put in there by you. So it's putting out videos. It's putting out pictures with links to tickets. I mean, it is a full-time job. And then some like when I go oh, yeah. about booking a tour, that's usually about, you know, three weeks of office work, about five days a week of emails, working contracts, because I have no one doing it for me. And yeah. I'm not a smart person yeah. and I'm stoned most of the time. So a lot of it gets gets done the wrong way. Yeah, I, I, it's, it is. There are people in comedy who have teams of people and there are people who do it themselves. And I'm from later. I like to do things myself. Well, hopefully you'll graduate at some point and have a team around you doing these things for you. Hopefully, and I'm sure it'll speed up. I've had a manager up. at points, yeah. but I've, done, I've gotten rid of them, you know? All right, this is a tough question for you. Give me a best and worst comedy experience. The best comedy experience I've ever had. I mean, the worst comedy experience I've ever had, I so many to think of. I mean, I've <laughs> been attacked by a heckler before. Oh, I've wow. been attacked on stage a few times. Well, I guess the worst comedy experience I have would be, the, I'm, the town I'm from New Jersey is called Manalip, and it's a very small rural town. Well, it used to be, now it's a little more commercialized. But we have one bar, and they decided to do a comedy show. I'd never performed in my own town before. And they booked me to headline the show. And uh, a lot of people showed up. Uh, it wasn't set up for comedy. It was a loud bar where they didn't tell some of the normal bar patrons there'd be comedy. So <laughs> no one was listening to the show. The people who were there to listen were in the back because the bar was up at the front. People who didn't want to listen were in the front. It was a whole disaster. The show went poorly. There was a group of three like large Jersey men heckling the whole time. When you're a headliner, I do feel like it's your job to kind of protect those who went up before you. So I started attacking those guys to open my set. I knew if I didn't handle them, it would be a, it would be a bad set. They, if you don't 
tell the crowd you control them, they could control you. Okay. It's very slippery slope. And I started attacking the one pack of the, the leader of the group. And he had this shirt that looked like it was a clown on fire. So I was like, why do you have a shirt that has a clown on fire? And he goes, that's, uh, he goes, that's, what's his name? Freaking Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. How dare you disrespect him? And I was like, I, one, I like, I'm a big fish fan. That's, I'm a fan of fish. I was like, so I like the bread. I like the dead by nature. I was like, yeah, I'm not insulting you. Your shirt looks like a clown is on fire. And then he goes, how dare you insult a local legend? And I know enough to know Garcia was born in San Francisco yeah. and we're in Manalpa, New Jersey. I'm like, you dumb fuck, this is Manalpa, New Jersey. And then at that point, a guy, well, a guy was sitting at the front of the bar. He rolls up his pants and he has a Grateful Dead tattoo on his leg. I'm like, is this a bit at this point? So now these three guys team up on me. And the main one of the group who I insulted, he rips off the shirt and starts charging at the stage, which in New Jersey, when the shirt gets ripped off, that means they're going to fight you. For some reason, they like to take off the clothes. So luckily, there was a Marine at the bar who I had gone to high school with. And he dove and took out two of the guys. And then there's actually, the, I, old on Twitter, I forgot where it would be, but there's a picture of me like holding off a group of two guys and throwing a punch at one dude while he's charging at me. And the only reason, like that would have been a fun experience, but those three guys got kicked out. And then the booker of the show docked me like $60 for their tickets being kicked out. He was like, you got those people kicked out, so you lost $6. Like it's so your I was fault. like, one, no security. I had to be my own security, and I got docked. Do you ever work with or open for anybody where you've been a little bit giddy? Have you had a chance to maybe be in a green room with somebody you're like, I'm going to be you? all of my idols that I grew up who are still alive, yeah, because I was very lucky. So the biggest comedy club, arguably, of all time is the Comedy Cellar in New York City. It's the mecca of comedy. It's the hardest club to get into. Uh, I was very fortunate at a young age when I was 20. I just turned 22, maybe. I got an audition. You have to be recommended in there. I got the recommendations. I was given the audition. I did well. And they passed me as a regular. I was, I'd only been doing stand-up for about two years. I was too new. I wasn't good enough. But they gave me a chance. And I worked there for a year before they ended up stopped using me. And that contributed to a lot of the weight gain and the mental shit because that was my pinnacle. And then I lost it. But it was because I got it too quickly. But working at the cellar, I mean, there were nights I ate dinner with Chris Rock and Louis C.K., I was with Louis the night before the story came out. Like we sat on the steps of the cellar talking for 45 minutes. I was wondering why he was being so nice to me. He had never been that nice to me. And then the next day the story came out and I was like, well, that's why he was being nice to me. He needed a friend, Uh, Aziz. But my favorite was I I was lucky enough one night at the cellar to be invited to, uh, there was a year and a half ago, Dave Chappelle did a run of shows to Radio City Music Hall where he did about 18 shows and he sold them all out. And he threw an after party at a club called The Box in the Lower East Side of New York. It's one of the most exclusive clubs in New York. And I was at the cellar that night and Chappelle, I didn't know him, but he liked me enough in the moment to invite me to the after party. Wow. And uh, I was 22 at the time. I stayed for maybe an hour and a half. I wasn't drinking at the time. And everything I had saw, it was way too intense for me. But being at that, that would, that will forever be probably the coolest Comedy moment. I remember it so vividly. We're walking up to the box. There's security up the ass out here. Celebrities going crazy. And I'm walking up with another comedian, Nathan McIntosh. Very funny. We're both wearing, we had sets tonight. So I'm, I'm in flannel and jeans. He's in jeans. We're supposed to be in tuxedos for this freaking thing. But we walk up to the door. As we're walking up, Questlove from The Roots, the band, he's on Fallon every night, joins us. He says, what's up, guys? You going in? He walks in with us. Security looks at us and says, you guys must be comics. Go in. They stop Questlove. They say, sorry, sir, are you on the list? And he just looks at them and he goes, I'm fucking Questlove. 
<laughs> wow. And then Roman goes, I don't see a quest on the list. And then the guy goes, he's in the roots. And they let they ended up letting him in. Yeah, I was there. There was like naked people hanging from chandeliers and a bear dancing on stage and people were naked with the it was really one of the most insane experiences of my life. Well, at some point in your career, you'll be throwing these parties yourself for other new comedians and bringing them in. It would be great. He gave a speech during it and it was movement. It was like Rocky doing a speech in fucking the boxing ring. That's what it felt like. He was up there with the mic in his hand doing a speech about how important comedy was. You're like, this is why this guy is our... He's our hero. And it was so weird to be part of this moment where there were no video cameras that no one knows this party existed. But to be in that night, it, that was the first night where I was like, I'm a comic. You know, Ari Shafir was standing next to me. And I was like, we were in the non-famous section and Ari Shafir was next to me. I was like, this is crazy that even Ari's back here. And there, there's a whole level of famous people up there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Ari has done well because of his association. I mean, he's a funny guy anyway, but his association with Joe Rogan has definitely put his name on the map. He gets himself in trouble oh, yeah. sometimes, though. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I think Mark Norman has one of the great roast jokes where he says, Ari Shafir is a lot like organic protein powder. He's hard to stomach. And the only reason we've heard of him is because of Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> it would make me laugh. It's a little harsh, though. Dave Chappelle yeah, would be they're, on... They're buddies, so... I know. Dave Chappelle would definitely be on the top of my list, probably, too. At this point in history, well, he seems to be just, you know, the top of the top. He does. I mean, he, he... he. I've seen him... One of the craziest... Another cool comedy story to share at the Comedy Cellar was a Chappelle story. He drops in. He's notorious for doing, like, two to three-hour sets. Like, you don't go up after Chappelle goes up. Uh, I'm working Thanksgiving at the cellar. They do three shows. It's not known as the best day to work, but it's the cellar, so it's still packed. I do the first show. It goes well. Uh, I'm not on this. I'm on three of the four shows. I'm not on the second one, so I wait. My buddy Seaton is hosting it, and he gets the light at, like, 10 minutes, which means someone is dropping. He's supposed to do a longer set, and Chappelle walks down the stairs, and he goes up first on the show, which is rare because he usually there's no one else after Chappelle usually. But he's only doing like 15 minutes, right? And he's murdering. And I see him starting to wrap up. It's easy to see when a comedian's getting ready to dismount. I'm like, why is Chappelle doing so short? Mind you, it's Thanksgiving. He puts the mic in the stand and he goes, you guys are such a cool crowd. I'm throwing a party. Let's go. And he walks off the stage with the entire crowd. The show's only been going on for 30 minutes. The drinks haven't, only one drink's been brought out at this point. He leaves the venue with the entire crowd and takes them to his hotel to a party. He says, the only reason you can't come to the party if you're a journalist. He says, if you're a journalist at the show, you can't come. Fucking rock star, man. And I think only three people stayed back. But I, I remember every other comedian being like, did he just leave with our crowd? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure everybody that works there was like, fuck this, man. <laughs> You know? Yeah, everyone, and, and because it was it was holiday pay, so you get paid more money on holidays. And since the seller's the best club in the world, they pay you even if your spot gets canceled. So they have to pay holiday pay to like five comedians, even though Chappelle didn't make a show happen. Were you able to go to the party yourself too, or not? No, none of the comedians went because I had to do other shows that night. Okay, fair. All right, give me give me a, a shopping list of the stuff you're doing right now. I know that you've got a podcast. You get together with other comedians in the aisle podcast. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, it's a podcast that me and my buddy Jack Byram, we record in the middle of a deli aisle in New York City. So we were actually recording it inside an open deli. While customers were in there, we'd sit milk crates down in the aisle. We'd set up cameras and record our audio on a Zoom. And it was going well. You know, we were really having fun with it. We had athletes. We had musicians. We had actors. We had Bobby Bacala from The Sopranos sit down in the aisle with us. We had on a lot of comics. Um, we had some big interviews planned, but 
the coronavirus, you know, it's it's not it's not fair to the deli to have three people, you know, sitting in an aisle of a food place talking. It just it wasn't the right look anymore. So it's being shut down for now. Are they open while you do this? So like you got customers yeah, that are kind Delhi's of walking around. You? Oh yeah, yeah. When the podcast was going on, the deli was open. So like there was a lot of clips we had of customers interrupting the podcast trying to get soup. <laughs> sauce because we would sit right in front of the cans of soup because we learned that people needed soup a lot so okay if we sat in front of the soup a lot of times you would get people coming in which was always good clips for us good interaction the cool part about the podcast is if you go to and listen to the most recent two episodes i think our theme song near the end was actually made by the legendary band bowling for soup oh really yeah who sang the song 1985 almost uh their lead singer jared reddick reached out to me one day on instagram i had no idea uh who he was he was talking about my weight loss and i was inspiring and i clicked on his profile and i realized who's the lead singer of bowling for soup and then we started like a little friendship and he made the theme song for the podcast it's really great you can actually hear his voice in it it sounds like bowling for soup when you play your clips on on your youtube channel um you also have like an intro extra what's the deal with that song and and the graphics Oh, yeah. So those were the clips from my last album, Infect Me Once. I think there's four of them on YouTube. Those are all from the album. There's an opening graphic. Uh, there's a song called Soul Sucker by a band called, it's either Lead Pony or Lead Pony. Yeah. I never know. But uh, I met them. They're not a famous band by any means, like unknown band from San Diego. I met them on tour and we were in Texas. Both our shows underselled, so we combined shows to do a stand-up and music show. I never met them before. But we met these guys. It was actually two girls and two guys on tour in Texas, and they were such a fun band. We hung out that night, and I stayed in touch with them, and I figured when, I'm putting, when I put out projects, I like to use people who I've met along the way. Collaborate. When I'm on the road, I like to use old friends. When I use photographers, I use friends that I knew growing up. Yeah, I always try to bring up the people who I've been around, and I was like, why not use their song? And it's a fun song. It's, it's cool. Jazz. In that little skit, it's about uh, 10, 15 seconds long. Um, you pay an homage to Carrot Top. Why is that? <laughs> that was like one of those weird creative decisions where like any now and then I'll watch a comedy special and it'll just have a weird opening. Yeah. Like that was just something that I thought would be funny because that's one of the only uh, – posters hanging up in the Zany's green room. Like a lot of headshots of comics and they have that because he recorded a special there. So they have that poster hanging up there. They have a letter from Ellen DeGeneres asking for stage time when she was like 19 or 20. And they actually have two of my posters hanging up in the green room, which is a huge honor. But I always thought it would be because I was a redhead. So I was like, let me just touch. Uh, yeah. When you play baseball, walking out of the locker room, a lot of times you tap the top of the locker room because there's a saying up there. So it was like a tribute to being an athlete and being a redhead. I saw Carrot Top and I was like, let me just hit it on the way down. Okay. Well, I figured it was something about the red hair i mean you're not a, you're not like carrot top red but your beard no no is. red beard brown hair on yeah, top. yeah okay so that's cool Pathogen. carrot Pathogen. top in a very strange way is is a bit of a legend himself you know what i mean oh he's, he's for sure a legend i know comics who are very well respected who will go watch your show in vegas because they really do get enjoyment out of it yeah yeah for sure i hear it's like a well-machined act i'm not a prop comic but i hear his props are a well-machined act i've only ever seen him on tv and the guy is definitely unique that's for sure like you can't say he's copying anyone else that's for sure carrot no, top is carrot well, the only person he's copying is whatever other people his plastic surgeon gave that face to <laughs> <laughs> All right. How do we find you online if anybody wants to look you up? Uh, Twitter, Instagram at Dan Lamort. Uh, website, danlamort.com. That's about it. You know, those are my big ones. I'm a very active person on there. I love talking to people bullshitting, putting jokes up all the time. Okay. And, and make it fun, you know? You ever worked in Canada? 
Uh, I did an old club called Laugh Lines, which was in New Westminster, British Columbia. I know, I've been there. Definitely been yeah. there. Um, when it's, did you uh, go there? There's a hotel that's haunted. I went there when it was still Laugh Lines. It's no longer Laugh Lines. They were sold to a house of comedy. So I haven't been there in two years, maybe three years even. Okay. But yeah, it was, I fucking loved it, man. I was there in the winter, so it was a bit cold, but I really enjoyed New Westminster. It threw me off how many different languages were on all the Gatorade bottles there and shit. <laughs> you guys said like French, maybe Asian. I don't know what was on there. Yeah, I know. It's Well, we're... We're bilingual for English, French. So. I loved it. My hotel was haunted. There was only like 18 rooms in it. The door, it wasn't even like a hotel key card. It was an actual brass key. Old it school. was fun, man. And yeah. those shows were really fun. Those crowds were great. Every show was sold out. It was a good time. I wish that venue didn't close. I would have went back there. It was so much fun. Yeah. Well, New, New West is a cool place. Greater Vancouver area. So I, I got to be honest. I have a lot of Canada in me. Not really, but I'm a huge fan of the tragically hip. And not many Americans say that. No, and I'm Canadian, and I'm I, I tolerate them, but most of my yeah. friends worship them. Yeah, I mean, as I Michael, but the kid who opens for me on tour is Canadian, and he played the song Bob Cajun for me, and mm. ever since then I fell in love with that band, and I watched the documentary Long Time Run, and I'm a fan, baby. Send me to Canada. They're good. I'm actually thinking about doing like a, a drug trip, kind of when things open back up, like a drug writing trip to Bob Cajun, like getting like an Airbnb by myself, <laughs> doing a little vision quest out there, trying to see if I could find. Find some gold and comedy. Yeah, there you go. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. Um, by the way, where are you sitting right now? It's all red behind you. I'm sitting in my living room. Nice. My TV room, if you will. It's Good choice of colors. Yeah, well, it, I usually my face usually blends into the red. I'm glad it didn't this time. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. <laughs> Thanks to Dan for volunteering for this crash course in podcast evolution. You need to find Dan online and follow him. Trust me, he's on Insta and Twitter at Dan Lamort. And just in case you can't spell that, it's at D-A-N-L-A-M-O-R-T-E. Or check out his website, danlamort.com. To find out more about me, check out my website too, distinctmedia.ca or on Twitter and Insta as well, at underscore distinctmedia. Cheers.